Digwit, Agus Falchagashra, Pod Crayla, Fela Star of Fingal, Gavilas Fiha. Hello, and welcome to the Fingal Festival of History podcast series 2020, brought to you by Fingal Libraries. This episode's talk is given by Cahal Boland, a current councillor and former mayor of Fingal, and has an interest in Fingal history and has given many talks on key Fingal moments and the individuals who shaped the county over the past 250 years. A former Cahirlock of Fingal Old IRA from 1916 to 1921, Commemorative Society, Cahill has undertaken extensive reading and research of the period, covering the 1916 Rising and the War of Independence. The talk is titled, Events Interlinking to the Sack of Balbriggan. It will focus on the events of 1920, outlining the moments and engagements that the Fingal Brigade were involved in. The period saw the loss of life on both sides and the emergence of an independent judicial system which tried from small transgressions through to acts which saw the death sentence passed. I am delighted to be here to talk to you about the events of 1920. Not just simply in terms of how the impacted on Balbriggan, impacted on Fingal, and I also threw in a little bit of Washington as well. But first, I think I have to go back a little bit to 1918 and the conscription crisis, where the British government were running short of manpower and they decided to introduce conscription in Ireland. The Irish people, led by the volunteer movement, objected strongly. Cahal Brua, decided that he would take drastic action in the event of the act being passed. And he recruited a squad to go to London. Amongst those people recruited were two men, William Cochrane and James Gaylor from Balbriggan. Their mission was to wait, and if the bill was signed into law by the king, to assassinate the British cabinet. Thankfully, the king didn't sign the bill. But these were serious players. Anybody who could sit out 10 or 11 weeks waiting for the moment to carry out that dastardly act, must have some nerve. And then I move on to the end of 1919. In December of that year, Michael Collins' squad realized that Lord French, the Lord Lieutenant, was going back to his residence in the Phoenix Park via a train, which would stop at Ashton Gate, just at Kelly's pub. The squad hurriedly put themselves together and went out to Kelly's pub, waited, and when they realised the train was about to arrive, they wheeled out a makeshift barricade. They moved it out slightly too late. The first car was on them before they realised it. They threw a grenade at the second car, in which they were sure Lord French was in. It bounced off and blew a hole in the road, but it drew rifle fire from that car and the following cars. Martin Savage, one of the volunteers, was killed. He was hit in the neck by a bullet. Dan Breen was also there, and he was injured in his leg, which made the escape of the squad difficult, but they succeeded. But unfortunately, they had to leave Martin Savage behind them. Lord French was, in fact, in the first car. And that event will play out throughout 1920 and have consequences for the IRA, for Ireland, and will send shockwaves throughout the world. In 1919, in September, the IRA here in Fingal decided to attack the barracks, the RIC barracks, in Rush, which they did, but were quite unsuccessful 
and only caused minor damage. But then a barracks was vacated at Gormanstown, and the local squad, the local company, was sent in to destroy it, and they were unsuccessful. So John Gaynor, who I've already mentioned, took three men from Balbriggan with pickaxe and paraffin and waste material and destroyed the building. It was only two, a very short distance from Gormanstown camp. So they took considerable risk in endeavouring to burn the building in terms that they didn't bring down the armed forces from Gormanstown on top of them. Early in 1920, the RIC then decided to vacate their smaller barracks and stations and withdraw into the larger stations, which would be reinforced. At that time too, they decided that because of the decline in numbers in the established RIC force, that they would recruit additional personnel. There was no willing takers for those jobs amongst the Irish. So they recruited from ex-servicemen, the British Army. And those who were recruited from the ranks formed a company which ultimately became known as the Black and Tans. Because they were hastily formed, they had to rely on whatever uniforms were available. The khaki from the army and the navy blue jackets from the RIC. A wag of a journalist in Tipperary, realising that they looked quite familiar, decided to call them, after the hunt, the Black and Tans, which they resembled. I suppose they resembled them more ways than one, not just simply in their outward appearance, but e equally in their savagery. On the 15th of April, a large number of hunger strikers were released across Britain and Ireland. John Gaynor decided to hold a celebration in Balbriggan, and a large party paraded to the hill of Clonard, where they flew the tricolour, lit bonfires, and celebrated. But there also were four RIC men. Sergeant Finnerty had three constables with him, and they watched. And word came to Gaynor that Finnerty said that he was going to remove the tricolour from the party before they reached back into the town of Balbriggan. And so the parade came back towards Balbriggan, and Finnerty made a dash to grab the tricolour. Gaynor immediately pulled a pistol and shot him dead. The three other RIC constables decided they would be safer in the barracks and didn't hang around. It was rough times. In the previous August, GHQ had issued a directive that houses ought to be raided. Any house that seemed to have arms should be raided and they should be told that they had to hand over the arms. In general, they were successful and they, there was no great hostility to it. Although I have met one man who told me a story of his grandmother who was a feisty woman. And when the knock came on the door, she was in the house on her own. The lads, the local lads were there. Mrs, we're here, whatever guns you have, you have to hand them over. Well, she gave them an earful and sent them packing. She mounted her pony and trap and quickly made way to Lusk, to her family home, where she stayed until the truce was signed in 1921. Interestingly, I met a second person in the last week who told me a story about his aunt who faced a similar situation, but the guy who called to her had worked on the farm and she recognised him. And he said, well, I'm going to have to shoot you. And she said, go ahead. And he did. She survived, but there were hard tickets on both sides. 
The structure and organisation of the company was, of the brigade, was altered also in the start of 1920. And Michael Rock became the brigade commander. And Michael Rock equally had an interesting past. In 1919, the uh, IRA here in Fingal had realised that Collinstown Aerodrome had a military garrison with quite a supply of weapons, of which, of course, the IRA were short of. And they hatched a plan as to how they would raid the camp and seize the weapons. Michael Collins refused to sanction it on the basis that the dates that they had proposed would have clashed with his plan to bring de Valera back into Ireland, having sprung him from prison in England. And apparently he must have been landing on up the coast and he was being brought down through Fingal back into Dublin city. Ultimately, the raid went ahead. The Dublin Brigade carried out the operation and Joe Lawless, who was the son of Frank Lawless, who had been the adjutant in the, or the quartermaster in uh, 1916, and Joe had also served in 1916, was detailed to provide transport for the Dublin Brigade. The raid was very successful and they took the weapons, but part of the agreement was that Fingal would protect the roads approaching Collinstown from the north, and in return that they would get a supply of weapons, a percentage of the haul. The vehicle which was used to transport the weapons went out the Nall Road through Ballybockle up towards Damastown, and on that hill broke down. And the stories told of having pushed the, the vehicle up to the top of the hill, and then that Michael Rock had organised a horse and cart uh, to take the weapons to Knockbrack where they would be put into a newly constructed arms dump in a deserted house. They fortified the, the uh, roof and the uh, attic floor and put the guns into that. And that was used throughout the period uh, as the arms dump. So Rock became the commandant of the brigade in the reorganisation. He had established himself as a man who could get things done. The Black and Tans had arrived. They were now encamped in Gormanstown. And an auxiliary force, separate to the Black and Tans, was established from the officer class of British ex-servicemen. And they wore black uniforms and were very much organized on paramilitary lines. The type of things that were happening were, for example, here in Swords, there were attempts made to take advantage of the large numbers who were here. There was a military barracks established uh, in the town along with the reinforced RIC barracks. The volunteers here, including Peter White, who was the captain, he was actually from Ballybockle, but he was the captain of the troop here in uh, Swords. Uh, he would later be killed, incidentally, in a, a shootout in Ballybockle itself in April of 21. They would have hung around the town with the intention of, as they put it, dropping one of them. They seem to have had many uh, attempts at doing that, but no action. They equally had a situation of attacking the Belfast Road, primarily between the five roads and Walshestown, where the high ground gave them an advantage in terms of just ambushing vehicles as they were passing by. Again, it really was a situation that both sides exchanged fire. There is some accounts of fatalities occurring within the British troops, but there were no uh, fatalities on the 
side of the IRA. The absence of genuine policing as a result of the closure of the smaller barracks around the North County and around the country, in fact, provided the IRA with the opportunity of providing a policing service. And in doing so, they also ended up with two problems. One, how were they going to decide whether people were guilty or not, which resulted in them creating the Sinn Féin courts under the remit of the Dáil, which had been established in January 1919. The second one was where to hold the individual. And again, Knockbrack plays a part in that. And the land there is uh, hilly and there are valleys and so on. It's well remote, difficult to find uh, where you're going. You can easily get yourself lost with the number of roads and side roads and so on. So they established a detention centre at that point. And again, I was talking to a guy in the last week or so who told me stories about his father as a child uh, living in the area, seeing prisoners out of the detention centre exercising. And that on one occasion, the IRA guards realised they were being watched and gave chase to the kid back to his home. And the child was told very definitely that he had seen nothing and he certainly was to say nothing. And that seemed to be the general case of all the people in the area that they gave tactic support by keeping their mouths shut. In 1920, the British military authorities in Ireland, although interestingly, they denied that there had ever been reprisals taken, gave an order to their people that reprisals were not acceptable, that they were not to indulge in them. So we have a well-organized IRA battalion operating brigade operating here in Fingal. Number of companies, well-structured, men who were very determined to achieve their objective and were prepared to kill to achieve that objective. So at the start of September, or in mid-September, the IRA brigade decided to hold a flapper sports day in fields adjacent to Gormanstown camp, the purpose of which was to raise funds for the IRA. They marketed it as that they were raising funds for the Catholic Church. And their main clientele came from Gormanstown camp, which had something of the order of, 20, of 2,000 men stationed in it, between black and tans coming in, going through an induction period, some stationed there, and then there would have been a large proportion of RIC officers who were either providing the training or the administration or indeed the internal policing, because with 2,000 guys, there was a need to try and keep some element of control. And the people who were there as black and tans had fought through a war. They'd gone through horrendous war scenes and difficulties. They'd come back to England. There was no employment for them. They literally were on the side of the street. They'd lost respect for authority. These guys were just desperados. And suddenly, here they were, they were given food and shelter and what seemed to them to be a very generous payment. And they really had nowhere to spend it other than the pubs. So there was quite a lot of drinking and carousing going on. But that flapper meeting was extremely successful. The IRA provided the stewarding. The black and tans didn't appreciate the fact that they were being told what to do by IRA men. But later, things got more serious. Michael Rock, who I referred to earlier, was with James Durham, who would later become a TD, sorting out the accounts 
of the day, balancing the books. A taxi arrived into Balbriggan, and two RIC officers emerged, the Burke brothers. Coming from Dublin, Peter Burke was stationed in Gormanstown, but they went in for a pint. There's two different accounts of this story, one given by Gaynor, which says that Cochrane himself were then approached by a number of civilians who had been approached by the taxi guy complaining that the Burks hadn't paid their fare and that both of them went to Rock. Rock's account is that Cochrane came into him and told him that the black and tans were misbehaving in Mrs. Smith's pub. They both agreed that Rock told Cochrane to go and get weapon. When they returned, or when Cochrane returned, Rock and Cochrane, according to Rock, went across the street with guns in their hands to the back door of the pub. They then entered the pub to find the Black and Tans manhandling a man called Monks. He told Peter Burke, who in fact, the reason he had been in Dublin was that he had just been nominated to become a district inspector. So he was having a celebration, himself and the brother having a few scoops. Things got out of hand. Burke wasn't prepared to leave the pub. Rock discharged his weapon in quick succession, killing Peter Burke on the spot and seriously injuring his brother, who was a sergeant in the RIC. Mayhem broke out, which allowed Rock and Cochrane, and according to Gaynor, who says he was there, all escape. They immediately realised what they did was going to bring some element of retribution. And they issued an instruction and order to all their volunteers not to stay at home that night. Now, I'm not going to get into the detail of what happened in the actual sack of Balbriggan. I'm a member of the Fingal Old IRA, and whilst our responsibility to them is to promote and protect their reputations, there is no reason why we should distort history, and consequently, that's why I'm making it quite clear what happened and caused the start of the sack of Balbriggan. The story I was told as a child was that the black and tans were abusing the barmaids in Mrs. Smith's pub. And that kind of locks in with Rock's version that they were misbehaving in the pub and that's why he went there. Perhaps all three stories are correct. But equally, if you think about it, the Burks were coming from Dublin in 1920 on bad roads in a tin lizzie. That seems quite a distance. Any as old as I am can remember how long the journey from Dublin to Balbriggan was in the 1950s, never mind the 1920s. And maybe they genuinely went in with the intention of going in for a drink, but they weren't going to discharge the taxi man because they needed him to bring them on to Gormanstown. So there are different ways of looking at history and how people remember the same events and tell the bits that suit them. So I think that in fairness, you have to kind of try and understand what might have been happening from the other side. Rock, Cochrane, Gaynor, all made themselves scarce. But unfortunately, two volunteers didn't and paid with their lives, Gibbons and Lawless. And they shouldn't be forgotten ever in the story. Decent men involved in their cause that they held passionately paid with their lives. Also in the town that day was a guy called Jack Straw. Jack Straw was an interesting character. 
He had arrived in the spring of 1920 and he lived with his aunt and her husband in Key Street. They appeared to have kept borders, but were basically fishmongers. Jack Straw was an ex-British soldier. Some said that he was in the Navy, others that he was in the Army. But he was very friendly with the RAC and the Black and Tans. And on the night of the sacking of the town, he was seen pointing out houses. The report was that he was seen pointing out houses where volunteers lived and houses which should be burnt. The following morning, Gaynor says he saw him stand looking into the ruins of a house where a gas pipe had burst or cracked and a flame fired into the air. And Jack Straw laughed merrily at the sight of the destruction. Now, maybe he was a guy who had post-traumatic stress, which wouldn't have been identified then. He may have been an innocent. But it was believed that he had given support to the Black and Tans. And he was put out of the town of Balbriggan. And when he left Balbriggan, he headed for Scurries. And when he got to Scurries, he met Terry Sherlock and another unnamed volunteer who didn't like the look of him, realised he was coming from Balbriggan and told him that Scurries was not the place for him and that he'd be best to leave the town forthwith. They say Terry Sherlock had his personal sidearm with him. Jack Straw was next spotted at Cardiff, along the stretch of road where Thomas Ashe had thought in the National School. Dan Brophy was driving a bread van, saw him, recognised him, went down up the road, picked up a revolver, came back, chatted with Jack Straw, offered him a lift. Jack Straw got in and Brophy drove him to Dempsey's of Grace Jew, which was the venue of a Republican court. Various members of the brigade were summonsed. A trial was held. Jack Straw was sentenced to death. They say he had two loaded revolvers with him, which would suggest that he indeed was a spy. They brought him to Parnellstown and brought him down to the back of Seaver's land where a stream starts. There was wild vegetation. And they shot him dead. They took his body along the stream into the next townland, Bettyville, where a grave was meant to be opened for him. There was a ditch and the instruments for digging the grave, but no grave. They opened the, gra- the ditch somewhat, deposited Jack Straw. Some said his name was Hemshaw. Equally, I've seen Penshaw. But we'll settle with Jack Straw for the moment. His body was covered with a small amount of clay. and The IRA men went off. Over the next couple of days, there was very heavy rain. And a child going through the fields, looking for rabbits, hunting, playing, whatever. And suddenly they saw a hand sticking out of the ground. The child had found Jack Straw, or had Jack Straw found the child? The RIC was sent for. They excavated, recovered the body, and then they held a military inquiry. The evidence given was from the aunt's husband. Yes, this is Jack Straw. And he tells us that after a week, he had decided the fella hadn't come home. And the word around the place was that he'd been involved in some fashion with the sack. 
So he decided he must have been murdered. There was the autopsy report, said they'd found a bullet in his skull, shot through the right eyebrow, and they found that he had been unlawfully killed by persons unknown. One of the interesting documents that we've recovered is from the RIC to the military to know would the cost of recovering the body be discharged from the military. And the cost is detailed under, in document 65453F, seeking approval for payment from army funds. Costs, one pint of whiskey, 12 shillings. Cost a special cart for removal of the dead body, three shillings. Total, 15 shillings. The spirit was certainly moved. On Monday the 27th of the month, in Scurries, John Terence Sherlock was his boat, his business. He was a farm labourer, as his father was. He appeared to be a nice fellow. He seemed to be very popular. And they lived at the Cabra, which at that time was on the outskirts of Scurries, just on the crossroads of the Golf Links Road. The family retired for the night, all settled, all was well. And on the door, the bang, the bang that every family feared. Father and mother got up, went to the door. Tans were there. It's turned Sherlock here. The parents went to try and buy time. Terry knew there was no point. The only thing that was going to happen was that his parents would be abused. So he fessed up, he said, I'm here, what do you want? They said, we need to take you for a bit of questioning. They brought him out, no shoes on him, and walked him down onto the road, into the dark. And that's the last his parents and his family saw of Terry Sherlock alive. The next day, the morning dawned, father and Terry's sister went looking for him. And they found his body down near the brook, lying there dead, blood seeping from him. They called Dr. Healy. There was nothing Dr. Healy could do. And he was brought home to be waked. And up to a couple of years ago, in Fox's butcher shop on Strand Street, behind the counter in an envelope, was a handkerchief which had been used by one of the Miss Foxes to mop blood from the spot he died on. The regard which Terry Sherlock was held is represented by that envelope, a relic of Terry Sherlock. Of course, the family were devastated. The town was devastated, shocked and horrified. He was given a great funeral to Home Patrick's Cemetery. Interestingly, in the police book for the days, straws at the top of the page, and Sherlock, four or five people after him. And strangely enough, in Balbriggan, the three names Gibbons, Lawless, Bork, all one, two, three, dead. So Bingal suddenly became the place in Irish newspapers. People knew where it was. And the atrocities which were occurring, these, the Balbriggan situation, Terry Sherlock, Jack Straw, all found great newspaper coverage 
and international coverage because of its proximity to Dublin City and the ease of access for international journalists who were here basically covering the uh, War of Independence. But equally, that was the case the previous year. One journalist coming back from covering the peace conference in Paris came through Ireland to see what stories he could pick up. And he was told about the emergence of the new doll and of the fact that they had established courts. And he came to see how they operated. He came out on the train to Scurries to meet Thomas Hand, who was a judge of the Republican court, a trade unionist. There's a lovely photograph which was syndicated around the world of Tom sitting at a table with his wife, the court clerk, pointing and telling him what's next on the agenda. Things settled somewhat. And then on the 21st of November, all hell broke loose in Dublin. Collins' squad took out 12 British agents in the course of the morning in an organised hit. The British retaliated. They went into Croke Park during a match. They opened fire indiscriminately, killing 14 people. There was a band from Rush playing at Croke Park that day, and one of the McCanns was part of that group. They got out of there quick and cycled back to Rush, where they found Rover McCann, who worked for Dublin County Council possibly holding the job like many of the other guys because of the position that James Lawless, one of the Lawlesses, held in the council as the county secretary. And they warned him, you're a marked man. You better not be visible for the next couple of days. You're the guy that tried to blow the railway viaduct of Rogerstown Estuary on Easter Monday. I'm sure the rover knew exactly what danger he was in. He lived on Key Street, Key Lane, in Rush, the Cosgraves, his mother-in-law and father-in-law, and his wife, their children. The wife was heavily pregnant, due in the course of the next couple of weeks. The eldest child wasn't well, was crying, children do. Jack decided to stay at home and look after his family. But again, disaster was to strike. His father-in-law was downstairs, half two in the morning. He was waiting for a call to go out fishing. When again, that knock came on the door. Jack McCann here. And the rover came down the stairs, was pulled out, dragged down the street, where he too was done to death. Found the following morning, shot. So, in Swords, Sunday evening, there was a play to be performed in Carnegie Library. And despite the news of what had happened in Dublin, Croke Park, the play was going ahead. One of the Taylor boys was in the audience. The military came in and took him out and told him that if any member of the military, the Black and Tans or the IRIC, was touched that he and his brothers would pay for it. 
he'd be shot, but the tailors would be held responsible. On the completion of the interview, Taylor returned and the play commenced. On leaving Swords, they headed for Scurries and arrived there around half past midnight. They knocked on the door of Patrick Murphy, who was a prominent trade unionist and a district councillor. Mrs. Murphy was forced through the door, but Patrick was quick on her heels and stepped in front of her. They asked him, was he Patrick Murphy? And he replied, he was. They asked him, was he a feigner? He said, I'm a labour man. And they shot him. Once in the right upper chest and once in a leg. They departed. The doctor was called, Dr. Healy again. And the priest, Dr. Healy, managed to save his life. It's just absolutely shocking. The tans went on up into Rush and called to Key Lane, where Rover McCann lived with his wife and her parents, along with his children. They rapped at the door. Mr. Cosgrave, the father, was in the sitting room waiting for a call to go out fishing. They called the Tans looking for the rover. Is Jack McCann here? And Jack presented himself and the family watched as the Tans took him and marched him down the road. The following morning, in the early part of the day, two men came and said the rover was lying dead in the field below. The family say they didn't hear shots. One of the neighbours say that she thought she heard muffled shots, four shots, coming from the field at some stage during the night. But the rover McCann was dead. His wife, who was at that point heavily pregnant, gave birth to a son about three weeks later. The Tans proceeded into Lusk and turned over the band room. They took, robbed the instruments, but they took the band's standard, its flag, our emblem, the Black Raven, captured at the Battle of Clontarf in 1014. It's been the standard of the people of Fingal ever since. They say that in later years, that flag was used to clean weapons in the Tower of London. Our flag, our emblem. Lust got away light. They came back into swords and proceeded to destroy two houses, Taylor's and Mr. Duff's farmhouse. Bandroom got done over, burnt. Taylor's boarding house was raided, the bar and grocery looted. A number of women who were boarders in the house made quick their escape and hid in the fields and in outhouses till daylight. The story of Bloody Sunday didn't end with Dick McGee and Clancy. The story ended with the death of Jack McCann, the last man to be killed on Bloody Sunday. Interestingly, the others who died will all have their names remembered on a daily basis because there's housing estates or streets called after them. Strangely enough, 
Jack McCann has no such memorial, but hopefully we'll achieve that objective this year. Councillor Brian Denny, Councillor Rob Donoghue and myself are all committed to having a road called after the Rover McCann in Roche, and we intend to achieve that. A fitting tribute. The tailors were ultimately paid 10,000 compensation for the damage which occurred to their premises. The tailors had been very active. They'd been out in 16. They were supportive of the movement. By this time, an active service unit had been established and they camped at Moortown outside the village of Old Town. And the tailors were one of the people who ensured that they were regularly supplied with food. At the start of December, the Tans again visited Scurries. This time they went to Baltrastina Lane at Barnagira. And they knocked at the door, they were looking for Thomas Hand, the Sinn Féin judge of international fame. His brother tried to deflect them for a moment as Tom tried to scramble out a window at the back of the house. There was a shot. The judge was dead. The tans went off. The people of Scurries just couldn't believe what had happened. There was a court of inquiry, military inquiry, as in all these cases, killed by persons unknown. The American people were exercised about all these issues. I made reference to Ashton Gate and Lord French, the assassination attempt on him. And in April of 1920, Thomas McCurtain, the Lord Mayor of Cork, was shot and killed. And I recently came across a witness statement from an ex-RIC man. And strangely, it's a handwritten statement, which is unusual in the military records. But he told the story of how the military came to the RIC and insisted they wanted McCurtain arrested and interned because he had been involved in the assassination attempt in Fingal on Lord French. They left when the RIC insisted that McCurtain couldn't possibly have been involved in something like that. But they came back and said they'd spoken to their informant who assured them that he was there. As a result of that, the Lord Mayor was killed, Cork's first citizen, replaced by Terence McSweeney, who in turn was arrested and went on hunger strike. And he was on hunger strike for 74 days before he died. And the people in America, to make the point for Ireland, marched around the White House for 74 consecutive nights. De Valera and Harry Boland had been in America throughout 20 to mobilize support for the cause of Ireland. Despite all that, neither presidential candidate had included Ireland in their programme for government. And Wilson didn't give us a hearing at the next peace conference. We always wondered who Jack Straw was. I said, some called him Hemshaw, some called him Penshaw. Well, I'm pretty sure I know exactly who he was. And that is parents, Elisa Rogers, Niemela Straw, married in St. George's Church in Balbriggan on the 30th of August, 1880. That W. Straw, Seaforth Highlanders, rank private 
service number 23593 was in fact our Jack Straw. The records are there. I want to thank Paddy Finnegan and my fellow members of the Fingal Old IRA for doing serious, consistent investigation and research to establish that. I hope that we can put the mystery of Jack Straw finally to bed. Thank you.